Well, hi, everybody. It's Jean Nathan, and it's Crosstown Conversations. And uh, it's been kind of a crazy day, so I hope we um, can pull it all together. But I've got some interesting folks on tonight. Uh, we're we're going to talk sort of all over the place. We're going to be talking about um, preservation issues, which some people love, other people don't. But it's important for the city because we've managed to keep – the treasures that we have in this town because of it. And that goes for both people, all our culture bearers, as well as our architecture. <clears throat> Secondly, we're going to really um, uh, deal with um, how do we build for the future when we can see the oceans coming? You know, so the water's rising, we have climate change, although some people don't want to admit that. Um, and so there's an artist named Bob Tannen who's going to give us some ideas on that and, and he's doing a big art show about it as well. And then there's a guy named Fred Swartz who lives in Braithwaite. He is a citrus grower and um, he's worried. He's worried about our citrus. Apparently there's some issues that we have to deal with. And it's it's fascinating that at a time when more of us have um, citrus trees in our yards and our gardens. Um, from, from the industry standpoint, there are definitely some major issues that we're dealing with. And I don't know the full story on, on, on uh, exactly what those issues are, but that's what Fred Swartz is going to share with us tonight. We're going to take just a couple minutes at the beginning of the show until our first guest is on the air to talk a little bit about... Um, Oh, what's going on nationally? You know, I don't usually deal with that very much um, on our show because I figure by the time uh, I get on the air, there's been plenty of coverage of it. But uh, right now it is just so disheartening to see what is going on in Washington with the tri- so-called trial in the Senate where, of course, evidence and witnesses and documents – are basically being um, uh, prevented from reaching the ears of those who are going to vote on uh, the impeachment of the president. And um, it's pretty horrifying. It, it, it's Imagine, and this is how I want you to think about it, imagine if you were in a trial situation and you have evidence and witnesses about what another party has done wrong to you and the court would not admit that evidence or those witnesses that's what's happening in Washington today and any court in any judicial situation they will tell you that evidence documents witnesses are critical to having a fair trial now (laughs) there's lots of other reasons why we don't have fair trials and we certainly don't have an equitable and fair judicial system necessarily, especially for some of us. And um, so it's not like everybody's doing it right everywhere except in Washington. But this is particularly egregious because, of course, we've had so much coverage of what has been happening, the kind of um, – quid pro quo, some people call it bribery, that the president has um, put forth to persuade a foreign country to help him get elected here in our country. It's just bad stuff. It's just really, really bad stuff. So I think my key counsel to you 
is that it's important to really understand what's going on, to stay in touch with it, to to pay attention. I know this is kind of asking a lot, but for those of you who have cable, do watch some of those cable shows at night. They are so informative. They are really, um, ah, they're just full of knowledge from the legal standpoint, uh, from the political standpoint, and um, from really just plain um, what's the right thing to do. So uh, I, I think that if you listen to some of the shows, it doesn't matter whether it's N- MSNBC or it's um, uh, CNN. Uh, um, both of those stations are really all over it. But uh, you can actually get a, a phenomenal education on how our political system works and how the courts work and how legal people think, how lawyers think, how the journalists think. There's been some phenomenal journalism. There are those folks who want to call it fake journalism. I don't call it that. I call it exceptional journalism that we've experienced over this past year. So tune in on it. Uh, I think it's really important. And, And at the same time that you're tuning in on that, needless to say, we need to tune in on what's happening in our state because we have a um, a majority that is dominating the legislature right now that is really representative more of some of the upstate points of view and not so much us. And so we have to really stay uh, uh, stay in touch and pay attention to what's going on there and make the phone calls. After the vote is when it counts. I've always said this. You've got to vote. That's important. But you've got to stay on top of things after that. All right. We're going to kick off. Um, things are a little bit in a different order than I had planned. We're going to kick off first with my friend Fred Swartz, who has some of the most delicious citrus you can ever experience, whether it's satsumas or blood oranges or valencias or grapefruits, you name it, he has great fruit. But he's concerned about um, a variety of, of situations that uh, he's going to share with us. So, Fred, are you there? I'm here, Gene. How are you? I'm good. I'm sorry about all the time changes, but um, it's just circumstances that we're going down today. Um, so, Fred, um, we're we're a citrus-growing part of the world, which a lot of people don't realize. I think they think of um, think all oranges come from either Florida or California, but the truth is, we've got a, a pretty substantial crop of citrus here, and. Well, there seem to be some industry issues, and I want to hear about them. At the same time, what's so interesting is that a lot of folks are growing citrus in their own gardens now. I know I am, and I'm really excited about it, coming out of a very urban um, lifestyle as a child. To be able to grow a piece of fruit in my garden is is big time. That That's something I just really um, am thrilled to be able to do. But um, t- tell me what's going on. I, I understand we're, we're having what you would characterize as not such a great crop year. Well, I mean, without, I've been growing citrus, you know, since my daddy before me, you know, for 40, 50, 60 years, I've been involved in it. And I've never had a crop as bad as this year other than the years where a freeze devastated, killed everything, and it took a couple of years to replant and come back. And the big problem I'm having in my particular area is is I'm in the Braithwaite region, which is outside of the flood wall, 
which means every time there's a threat of a storm, I'm the first one that needs to evacuate out of here. And it's uh, become, you know, a real problem for the trees. Uh, Hurricane Isaac devastated me where before the wall was built for Katrina Rita, I didn't have flooding at all. So it's a problem. And my whole region, virtually all of the farmers in my 20-mile so stretch of the river are getting out of citrus. You know, there's, I would say, at least half of the trees that were here before Katrina, Rita, and then Isaac are gone. They've been bulldozed out because they're, you know, salt water comes in and salt is not good for growing plants. And then you throw in these other diseases that have hit the industry. I mean, it's devastated Florida, this greening that is here in places, but it's not extant yet. But the insect that transmits uh, this disease is here. And that needs to be controlled. So it's, uh, you know, the, the future of citrus in my area is very, very bleak. I finally communicated with my county agent. It took forever to get in touch with him because the programs have been cut back so badly by the previous governor's administration. Uh, and talking to him, he told me one of the guys that I've dealt with across the river whose daddy grew citrus, you know, for and his daddy before him, they're not growing citrus anymore. All they're doing is growing trees, which is wonderful for the home garden. You know, if you want to spend $25, $35, $40 and put a tree in your yard, they're wonderful to have. But it's uh, a lot of people don't get the crop yields off of a tree in their yard that these guys down here, all of us grew down here, and we're able to put in the stores for, you know, reasonable prices. It's generally much cheaper than, than the stuff that comes from California or Florida. And like I said, Florida's got issues that they may not be, you know, a lot of these old multi-generation families down there are selling their property, turning it into Disney World or, you know, housing development. So it's not good. You know, saltwater intrusion is, uh, I think, my biggest problem here. And we need to get some of these diversion things here to try and rebuild you know, the uh, the marsh out there, or at least supplement what's there, because that's what Mother Nature made that, you know, a thousand years ago, this land wasn't even here, and it might not be much longer before it reverts back to the Gulf, so... It's, it's, uh, it's, as you said, it sounds pretty bleak, but um, let, me, let me drill down on a couple things, first of all. Um, so, the salt water comes in, it... it, it uh, um, obviously, it settles into the ground. <clears throat> Can you get it out at any point? I mean, what what what, I mean, it, what, what it, do you try to do with it? There's really not a lot that can be done except hope that it doesn't happen again. Over time, with you know amounts of rainfall that we get down here, some of it does leach out of the soil. But it's still, you know, there's a reason that, you know, armies in, in the past would salt the earth as they retreated to prevent the population from being able to grow any kind of food. Oh, God, that's and so horrible. I uh, didn't know about that. It's, uh, you know, it's a problem. And there's, we're surrounded by salt water. People don't realize just how close the water is to the city of New Orleans. Yeah. You know, when before I was born... The back of my property was Cypress Swamp, 
and a lot of it was rice fields that you know the, the farmers back in the day grew. There was a lot of sugar cane down here back around the turn of the desert, and that's all gone now. And and the places where they grew the rice and and have harvested out all the cypress to build New Orleans and other, you know, harvesting the timber. It's all reverting back to the Gulf of Mexico because of, you know, a multitude of reasons. It's a very, very complicated story. And it's, uh, New Orleans is a very precious place. And it's, maybe that's part of the reason it's so wonderful is, is it's very precarious. And we're very fortunate that we haven't been hit by a hurricane and, and not in my lifetime. Katrina didn't hit us. Betsy, came damn close, but we had a lot more marsh back then, too. And other storms in the 40s and, you know, even 1915, it was a major hurricane hit New Orleans and did a lot of damage. But every generation tends to forget that, you know, but it's going to be a long time before people forget what Katrina did. Wow. Um, so let, let me go to the other issue that you mentioned, um, the greening. Is that what you called it, greening, the the disease that, that's coming in from Florida? That's the main thing, the, the citrus greening, and it's spread by a, a little insect called the Asian citrus psyllid. Uh, and it's once it gets into the tree, it's pretty hopeless, although uh, – talking to this gentleman today who came down to the farm to give me, you know, inspect some of my problems. He's saying they've been doing a lot of uh, work in Florida with this disease, trying to, in essence, micromanage the nutrients that the tree needs to be to grow optimally. And if you can give these trace elements and manganese and various other things to keep the tree vital, it can almost live with the disease and be able to produce for, you know, more than the two or three years that a, a, a tree, once it's infected, you know, it, it'll peter out and die. So hopefully that's, you know, something to do, but uh, it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not a spring chicken anymore and, and trying to start a, a new kind of replanting of citrus and and dealing with all those issues. I mean, when I was a kid, you planted a tree, you cultivated it, you kept the grass away from it, you fertilized it, and virtually every year you got a pretty decent crop, except for the freezes, which we, you know, generally have every 20 years or so. There's a killing freeze, although it's been over 30 years since we've had that devastation down here. But it could happen so, tomorrow, too, you know, and it's not going to happen. This freeze that's, that we're coming with right now is not anything that anybody in New Orleans should be concerned with the trees in their yard. Well, um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I think something that we hear a lot about um, in, in terms of uh, effects of the climate change is for some reason uh, what seems to be going along with climate change is um, – Bugs, new bugs, new diseases that are hitting our, our planted things. And, and that's um, something that what I'm afraid of is that greening, whatever that is, you, you maybe get that under control. And even, you know, if you do plant new trees, there's some, some other kind of bug going to come along. Well, there's a number of diseases that are threatening citrus. I mean, it's, it's horrible in, in Florida. I mean, it's just, you know, I've seen some stories on the news, you know, like 60 Minutes, those kind of programs that'll do a story on, 
these multi-generational families, you know, that have been growing citrus forever. And to see pictures of the orchards now, they're just devastated. And it's, you know, people like to buy cheap orange juice, but that's going to be a problem. Unless it moves somewhere. But then where do you move it to? We have, you know, there's only so many places that are really conducive to growing citrus. You can't have temperatures much below 25 degrees to, to keep, a, you know, prevent an orchard from dying. And then, you know, rainfall is another issue. We're pretty close to average every year, it seems, if you look at the airport. But we don't get the same amount of rains that we used to get. I've not noticed that since the early 80s, that I don't get what you call horticultural rains, the kind of rain you need to water a crop well and not wash it out of the soil or not pack it down and create a hard pan and and just, you know, diminish the, the plant's ability to procreate. So, uh, you know, citrus is kind of nice because you don't really need that. It's not like a field crop that you need X amount of rain every three to five days to make cucumbers or squash. But And then with our water table is so high, you know, particularly since global warming, our river won't go below, you know, it's over 11 feet right now. We're in flood stage right now in January. I know. that's uh, so. That was really scary when I heard that. And, of course, these huge storms that are moving across the Midwest, every one of them uh, dumps water in the <laughs> Mississippi River. So I know we're going to be dealing with it again this spring. But uh, let me uh, ask another thing. So um, – you know, a lot of us, when the, when they started talking about a freeze, um, just now, uh, you know, t- tonight it's going to be cold. Last night it was cold, almost freezing, not quite on this, uh, side of the lake and up on, uh, on above the lake, of course, they're dealing with freezing. So I was trying to figure out, you know, what was the reality about my, uh, um, I don't have that much fruit left on my trees right now, but, uh, and then, of course, my flowers, whatever, but, um, uh, when they were talking about the weather, they were saying, okay, it's going to be 38 degrees, but it's going to feels like, it's going to feel like 32 degrees. And I'm saying, wait a mm-hmm. minute. So what does that mean for a plant? Does that well, mean the, the plant the is dealing with 32? That, that or? Been, the wind chill has been created for people. You know, ah, on exposed skin, okay. a wind of X number of miles an hour with a certain temperature may cause your skin to feel like it's 32 degrees. And the citrus, doesn't have skin you know that it's got bark it's got it needs to be 32 for any kind of freezing to happen and the main issue with real cold and windy conditions is how it dries out things so watering your plants uh deeply when a freeze is coming is helpful so even if we're not going to freeze it probably is not a bad idea to get out there and do a little watering is that what you're saying well, but, you know, if the freeze was going to be of some significance, this is really not going to be a freeze, you know, to, to parts of, you know, in New Orleans proper or closer to the lake. or you got to get away from the lake, away from bodies of water for the temperature to possibly drop, you know, to a, a point that could be dangerous for things. But as long as you have a little breeze, that stirs up the atmosphere and it will prevent the you know the temperature from dropping like a rock. Okay. And that's not gonna, that's not going to happen tonight. It's not going to happen out of this whole event. Next tomorrow night might be chilly too, but it's not going to be a problem. So 
I would, if you know, if I had a tree in town, I wouldn't be going out there picking all the fruit and worrying about it. Great. The fruit will hold better on the tree than than picking it and putting it in a bucket in your kitchen. All right. Well, you know, one year I actually, when we really did have a freeze, I, th- I think it was about two years ago, I did go out and pick every damn a piece of fruit on my tree and my neighbor's uh, trees. So I- mm-hmm. I'm happy I don't have to do that this time. Fred, I know it's a difficult. Uh, World that you live in, but please keep planting those those citrus because I sure do love them, and I love yours in particular. That's great stuff. By the way, tell folks where your um, farm stand usually is up on St. Charles. I mean, I, my crop is so poor that I don't generally. I haven't been out selling as much. I don't deal with the stores anymore because I don't have the volume, and I just you know went up. On a weekend day that the weather's good, I'll come up down to St. Charles and Lower Line. Lower Line and is where you hang talk out. To people. Okay. That's a neighborhood I grew up in as a kid, and I know everybody up there. And it was something right. I started doing after Katrina right. because I had a hell of a crop back then, and I had no stores open. So yeah, I, I had a I had a, a good opportunity there to make a lot of friends because people were so tickled to see that Sassumas had survived Katrina. Right. I could have I could have done anything I wanted for, for bags of Satsumas back then. Listen, you keep uh, um you you keep you keep coming out there and um and and you know you I'm always uh, there for your for your citrus. So mm-hmm. um hang in. I know it's always a difficult uh, world, but as my husband always says, uh, nobody ever said it was going to be fair. I got to get my next guest on. Thank you so much, friend. All right, Jane. I'll talk to you in a couple All of days. All right. Take, take care. care. All right, now we're going to do something. Lately, it seems like I've been doing a lot of um, tributes for people we've lost. And um, a lot of them have been musicians over the past couple of years. It's been really um, disheartening to lose people who were really our friends. They were just, they, they were musicians. We might never have talked to them in, in real life, although I have talked with many of them, having been involved in producing a lot of music throughout my life. Um, but, but now it, it seems like, um, we're, we're just losing people, uh, in, in different areas. Maybe it's just my age group. I don't know. But there's a guy named Raymond Boudreau, who was an architect and a preservationist, um, who just passed away at the age of 97. And I really wanted to talk about him on the show because apparently they're not doing any kind of a memorial or funeral for him. And he deserves a little bit more than that. So we're going to talk with, uh, about him. With a guy who spent some time working with him on a personal project of his that just went on for years and years. So Fritz Rolofs is on the phone with us. Fritz, are you there? Here. Hi, Fritz. I'm sorry Hi. about the timing. We we had a, a oh, we good, of... we good, we okay. Okay, <laughs> cool. So um, let me just set this up first of all by saying that Raymond Boudreau is one of the guys who worked to prevent them from building a riverfront expressway through the French Quarter along the riverfront. Um, that would have right. been pretty bad. It, it was bad enough. Um, it really, it's unfortunate that that led to it being built on Claiborne Avenue, which had a terrible impact on the Treme and, and other neighborhoods around it. So the solution was not a good one. They should have moved it maybe over by the city park or there, there were alternatives, I think, and they just... Right. Uh, um, my husband, who's here to talk about something else, 
um, can probably tell us more about that. But in the meantime, he really did work not only to try to prevent that from happening, um, but he also got out there and, and stood in front of the bulldozers um, at the mouth of Bayou St. John um, to try to prevent the construction of uh, Lakeshore Drive, which he felt was going to have a really bad effect on the bayou, which he really treasured. Correct. Now, his home um, is on the bayou, and apparently, and I didn't know anything about this, but for seven years, something like seven years, is that the right number of years? Correct. That's how long I worked with him, but it actually uh, took him longer than that. You know, he he worked on it after I had to uh, start taking care of my own home. You know, I worked with him for seven years, uh, weekends and holidays. And, so, uh, so first, you must be some, I'm sorry. Weather, weather tight and, uh, uh, pretty much finished, you know, but, uh, he, he worked on it longer than that, even, you know, and then he worked on it almost till his last breath, you know, he was still maintaining it, you know, he, you know, he was till, uh, last year, he was upright and strong, you know. And, uh, his, his, uh, his, uh, death came pretty quickly, you know. He had, one day he just threw up blood, you know, and, uh, it was down from there. So, um, uh, I, I kind of think sometimes it's, it's a good thing not to know what's coming and to enjoy your life up until the last minute. But we yeah. really do in this city, um, I don't care what neighborhood you're in, uh, or, or what, you know, how tiny a cottage you're in or how big a mansion you're in. We, we really care about our homes in a, in a right. way that's very different from a lot of other cities. I think a lot of people kind of bounce around from apartment to apartment or house to right. house. But here we, they're like, they're like our family. They're part of our family. Yeah. And so, and, and, and what is your deal that as a friend, you spent so much time helping this guy on his home? I, I'm yeah, fascinated he, to hear about that. And then I want you to tell me about the house itself because my understanding is that it starts out as a, as a little cottage and then he yeah. kind of modernizes it despite his oh, re- preservation he, roots. He set the standard, you know, for, uh, uh, pres- preservation of, uh, stuff like that and, uh, bringing it, uh, uh, up to date, you know, his, his, uh, his wife was my second cousin. That's that was uh, our first uh, uh, relationship, you know. And uh, he just mentioned that when I was, I guess I was nineteen or something, eighteen. He was at my mother's house, my father's house, and uh, mentioned that he was going to build a house, you know. <laughs> and uh, and it, that's the way it started, you know. And and I had no idea what he, you know, what he was going to do, you know. And I ended up spending uh, the next seven years on holidays and weekends with him hand in hand, you know, uh, cutting boards by hand and uh, with a hammer. You know, we didn't use power tools, <laughs> but it, it's a uh, it's a real jewel, you know, the house itself that it, that he did. It was I realized as we as along as we did it that he had a plan. He had planned almost every nail in that house. He knew exactly how it was going to be, you know, every detail, you know, he had done. And it was impressive, you know, and I learned a lot from him. But he was he was determined, you know, nothing would stop him. 
So you start out again with a, a small cottage, right? That's what I understand. Well, I've yeah, only been in was, the house. Uh, it was a, uh, it was a uh, several bedroom house, you know, that he totally uh, redid, you know, reshaped it, you know, and different openings and and uh, the uh, the frame was pretty much. Uh, um, he he preserved the frame of the house, which was a remarkable thing in itself to see that the way they did it with mortise and tendon, you know, each each uh, stud was mortised into the sills, you know. It wasn't built like uh, modern houses, so that was an education in, in itself, you know, to deal with that, you know, to take it apart and, and redo it and fix it. But, I mean, just to look at this thing, and, of course, the material, the framing material in that house was something that, you know, you just don't see in any lumberyard, you know, for the last 50, 60 years. You what know? do you mean? What, what, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Uh, well, the qual, the quality of it, you know, and the size of these, these, uh, these elements, you know, the, the sills and the studs and the, and, uh, the, the mill work, you know, that was left in the house and, and the, even, even the brickwork. I think there were three, chimneys in the house, three fireplaces, you know, that we removed and we left one, we rebuilt one. We actually did it ourselves. And uh so he I mean, it was a, a detailing thing from the very, very beginning. Major yeah, we actually got under the house. That's how we started and uh leveled it to his specs and uh started from there. And I thought, I thought we, you know, it took so long to do that. I mean, we did it with jacks that we had, you know, just us, two of us. You mean like and, car uh, jacks? The kind of jacks you well, jack he cars had a, up with? He had a, he had a railroad yeah. jack, which oh, was really dangerous, wow. you know, and a, like a six foot, uh, railroad, uh, pinch bar that we would jack it up, you know, and you'd have to jack it up. This thing was not, we didn't have really the equipment, but we did it, you know, car jack. I mean, not a car jack, but hydraulic jacks. That we got, and uh, we uh, sh- shimmed it up till he got it as level as he wanted it, you know, and in the places that he wanted. But I thought I remember my my impression when we were doing that. We spent so much time under that house. I thought we'd never come, we'd never <laughs> get to anything else, you know. But eventually, we did, you know, and. Uh, Eventually, it was, it, it was complete, you know, but he so, was determined and patient with the thing, you know. So and, he was, was nothing, so he really, going to turn him back, you know. He really took it on a, a day by day basis and, and didn't rush oh, the process man. at all to get it right. But, um, and he was an architect, so he kind of, he knew what he was doing and he wasn't, yeah. a, um, a novice at it. But what fascinated me when I was watching the Treme, TV series after Katrina, so much of what went into that um, uh, TV series was all about how we all got busy rebuilding one way or another. I mean, whether you lost your house altogether and you had to build from right. scratch or, or uh, you know, parts of your house were damaged and you had to fix what was damaged. Um, you had to do it. <laughs> yeah, but um, you know what? Uh, we had to do it, but... Of course, there were some people who never were able to come back, and that's a much longer story, yeah. and I've talked about that on a lot of shows. But um, 
I think again, our our commitment to the city was so profound, and yeah. our commitment to rebuilding the houses. And here we oh. are in the fifteenth anniversary, the fifteenth year since that storm. And right. um, there's people out there still rebuilding. And you go through yeah. the neighborhoods, oh, and yeah. you, you see so many, so much there's new so work many, being done. So many, so many stories. You know, everybody that lived there had a story. You know, it's got a story. You know, forever. You know. It's, uh, I mean, <laughs> I can tell stories, you know, but, but he, uh, he, uh, where that house is, you see, I mean, he selected that spot, you know, he knew that spot from, he, he was planning that basically from, from being, from a child, you know, he lived in that area and he knew it and he knew the city park and all of this stuff. And then he became an architect and I mean, he just knew this, he knew what he was looking for, you know, but that place never saw any water, you know, Yeah, because along the body there, because it's a ridge, you know, right, along yeah. the waterways, of natural waterways, there's a ridge, and that's right. what you don't go under, you know. But I understand that he actually grew up in the French Quarter. His mother well, was Italian there, during know, the but days. But they moved eventually to around City Park there, you know. Yeah. Him and his family. Yeah, he can, he told me things about the French Quarter that are a long, long past, you know. It's gone, long gone, you know. When it was um, basically uh, an Italian he, neighborhood. When he was a yeah. child. Yeah, right. when he was a child. <laughs> you know, a lot of he people don't realize, um, uh, a lot of people, there's, a, there's always a little debate going on about the boundaries of Treme, right? And um, right. a lot of people think that the boundary of Treme is Claiborne Avenue. Um, and uh-huh. the only reason that they think that is, of course, because of the expressway and how that kind uh-huh. of bifurcated it. But the truth of the matter is that the Treme neighborhood actually extended all the way to Bayou St. John. It oh. was Bayou St. John to the river. That was all Treme. Yeah. Um, and yeah. now we still focus on the area from the other side of Claiborne. But from, you know, my part of it is, is I think, primarily called Sixth Ward because we're beyond Clay, uh, Claiborne and we're not in Bayou St. John. We're kind of in between the two where I live. But um, huh. uh, really, even as far as Bayou St. John, you're still um, part of that Treme culture, which I think is one of the reasons why he wanted to be in that area. Besides, I think he did like the bayou and the water, I imagine. Yeah. Oh, he, it was, uh, he liked the closeness. I mean, he was very much involved in City Park, you know, preserving that too. Oh, you know, he, he was. was the president okay. of the City Park Association or whatever it was, you know. He did a lot for that too, you know. But, uh, he loved the park, you know. He loved it as a child and, uh, all his life, you know. He loved it. Uh, he loved New Orleans, period. You know, the French Quarter. It, he was just, uh, infatuated with it, you know, and the riverfront. And uh, that's what he devoted himself to. Well, I, I, I'm glad we had a, a chance to talk a little bit about Ray Boudreau, Raymond Boudreau, architect, French Quarter preservationist. And I, I have one last question I, I want to ask before we move on to our next guest, and, and that is, um, okay, so this beautiful house that he worked on and so hard all those years, what's going to happen to it? He... Uh, Okay. Yeah. I'm he sorry. Left oh, oh, that is—you just made gave, gave me chills. What a sweet thing. 
That's incredible. Now I know why you're choked up, and I'm sorry. I didn't mean to ask a tough question. You all right? Yeah, I'm all right. That's something really special, but I, I, I still have chills. So literally, you worked all those years with him, and and he returned that to you by willing you the house. That's just an incredible story. I'm so glad I got you on, Fritz, because I, I didn't know about that part of it. And um, we were surrounded by so much. I started the show talking about some of the horrible stuff happening in Washington. But to hear that somebody cared enough about someone who helped him in the past going forward, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really that's an important moment. Yeah. He, he cared. I mean, that's why he preserved tried to preserve all those things. I mean, he, it wasn't just for him, you know. He realized that it was good for, for it made the world better, you know. Wow. That's why he did it. Yeah. He felt uh, responsible, you know. He was a very responsible person. And he cared about it. Uh, for those oh, of yeah. you in the audience who want to know more about uh, Raymond Boudreau, one of our preservation heroes, there is a story um, on NOLA.com. It was in the paper, uh, I think, yesterday, and um, and uh, it, it was online. It's been online for a few days. Um, you can check on, and, and learn a little bit more about him. But he definitely is um, – a model, and he's one of us. We we all, as I said, we we consider our homes part of our family. So um, it's a beautiful story, and I'm so happy to hear how he repaid you. Listen, Fritz, you have a good life going forward. Okay, okay, thank you. You're so sweet to uh, call in, and I'm sorry about the little mix-up on the time, but uh, no we, problem. we got to talk. I'm here. You take okay. care. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Fritz. And I, um, God, what a story. Fritz Roloffs, who worked for seven years with Raymond Boudreaux on this house on Bayou St. John. You know, this is the house that's kind of modernist on the outside. It's surprising in terms of him being a preservationist. But um, he lived in that house until he passed on at 97. That's not bad, folks, huh? That's something to do with the way we deal with our houses here. We treat them right. He certainly treated his right. Well, now we're going to talk about the future um, of our homes, and we're going to talk with an artist who cares also about our homes, our houses, and and he's he's been talking about the threats um, to our way of life for a long time through his art, and he's got a show opening at a museum called the Hilliard in Lafayette. I don't know how many of you make that little ride through the Atchafalaya um, basin to get out there, but um, I've, I've spent some time in Lafayette, and what a happy town that is most of the time. There's issues everywhere, but, I mean, those folks know how to dance. They know how to make music. They, they, uh, they have some good eating, you know, the food that we call everybody's confused about Creole and Cajun, but they definitely eat Cajun food up there. And, um, not to mention, of course, uh, all the iterations of the music, including the Cajun music, but also the Zydeco, which is from nowhere else on this planet, but right there. So um, it's 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 interesting to to be doing a show up there, and Bob Tannen is doing this show called Box City, and I am not going to try to explain it. I'm going to have to let him. Bob Tannen, Box 
city. What is that all about? Well, recently we celebrated the 300th anniversary by Europeans uh, for the city of New Orleans. Um, I've always been more interested in the future than the past. And uh, I think that I think that in the next 300 years, as opposed to the last 300 years, there are going to be major changes that some of which we can predict and others not. There's a great deal of uncertainty about the next 300 years. But uh, climate change, as we're beginning to know it better and the impacts of it and feeling it, is going to change the way we live. It's going to change the way we function. And uh, this exhibit at the Hilliard Museum is an attempt to consider what will happen without really knowing for sure what will happen. But there are a couple of things that we do know will happen over the next 300 years. Uh, there will be more people on the planet, even though current estimates are that the uh, population growth might level off by 2100 uh, by the 21st century. Uh, we do know that as a result of rising sea level, there will be less available land uh, uh, for habitation and for uh, nature as we know it. Uh, we also know that the finite resources, uh, including minerals and other means of uh, material that we use, uh, will be running out or will, uh, will be limited and much of it will be gone. And the cost of all of this, the financial cost, economic cost, is going to be great. So looking ahead, the next 300 years, uh, there's going to be less space for us that's uh, uh, habitable and sustainable. And this show is based on the assumption that we may be living, each person occupying a space that's perhaps eight foot by eight foot by eight foot as opposed to the larger spaces we occupy currently. That's tiny. So that uh, this show will include an eight foot by eight foot by eight foot space to walk into to feel like, to get some sense of what that will feel like, quite different from what we're experiencing. There's a space packing phenomenon that will occur over time because we will be more crowded uh, and uh, other species will have similar similar congestion and uh, issues associated with being able to survive under those conditions. So this show, Box City, uh, which is an interactive show, is made up of cardboard cartons, heavy-duty cardboard cartons, about four feet by four feet by four feet. When you put two of them together, you get a larger space, of course. But we will have these cardboard cartons to be moved around uh, in this space, the major space of the museum. So the Box City idea is to try to understand how our experience will change in space and in time uh, over the next 100, 200, or 300 years. Uh, hopefully, or we'll maybe be able to sooner, because well, you know there's so much debate about how things yeah. are moving, and they seem to be moving faster than was originally thought. Um, I don't know that we'll be living in such tiny houses anytime really soon, but New Orleans particularly is one of the more threatened areas, and so this could happen here even sooner than many other places. Well, Gene, you're not looking ahead well enough. There will be smaller spaces. 
uh, one thing that uh, a little bit of background. I came to New Orleans in 1969 after Hurricane Camille, and I was able to work with the Curtis and Davis architectural firm, the firm most associated with the Superdome, and we did a study of the housing neighborhoods of New Orleans. This We identified 72 neighborhoods. Now there's perhaps more than 100 neighborhoods Historic because of the development. All neighborhoods. We looked at all neighborhoods of the city. And New Orleans East was developing at that period. So now there's perhaps 100 more neighborhoods. Uh, we identified these neighborhoods by talking to the people who live there and uh, learning their experience and the boundaries that they identified for their neighborhoods and the character of their neighborhoods. And the shotgun house became a very important object to better understand this long, narrow house, whether it was a shotgun single or a shotgun double or a camelback, uh, is the iconic form of architecture in this place uh, and elsewhere on the Gulf Coast. So beginning with the idea of the shotgun house as a, a form that's uh, to be better uh, appreciated and understood, I began to do sculpture using the form of the shotgun as the basic element of that sculpture. And that has morphed into an interest in the minimum housing space of the future. I've always been much more interested in the future than the past. It it bothered me in a way that we focused so much on the last 300 years, which included uh, an extensive period of slavery and poverty, and uh, less concern about the future. I work with the Rand Corporation, a think tank that's concerned about the future. We have an office here in New Orleans. We should be doing more research on the future of this place and other places related to where we are. Um, So people, let me understand this, can come to the Hilliard Museum, which is on the campus of of UL uh, of um, it's the it's the Lafayette uh, Lafayette Univers- uh, par- Lafayette uh, University a fil- part of the LSU system UL is the university in Lafayette but it's so, but it's part of the LSU system and the Hilliard Museum is a major museum for the entire LSU system uh, an art museum that uh, has been doing wonderful things in great exhibits uh, over the years. So Designed, in fact, by a New Orleans architect. Um, it was designed and built, I guess, um, what? I'm not sure of the date. I'm not sure either. Uh, it's within a, a little over um But Alan Eskew was the principal architect yeah. of that museum, and it's a beautiful facility. So the show opens on... February 7th, uh, with a reception, of course, in the evening. That's a Friday. So, uh, if, if somebody wanted to take a nice little, you know, uh, TGIF well, trip. Four to six is a VIP opening, and then six to eight is the general opening. Okay. And then it'll be open. The show will stay open until? Uh, into mid-May. Mid-May. May 16th or 17th. So, it's going to be up for a while. So, I, I know a lot of us don't, uh, you know, there's so much going on in New Orleans, a lot of us don't really get much beyond our, our borders. But there is a lot going on in the state, and, and Lafayette is a, a fun place to visit. So it's, it's worth it um, to, to take a little 
you know, a road trip on a weekend and, 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 and the fun of this, of, of working, of going to this show is that you not only get to look at it, you actually get to touch it, feel it, play with it. That is not typical in a museum. This is not the first time you've done an interactive show when you did the, um, your, um, your prospect show and you put up uh, canvases all over the walls of a shotgun and folks could come in and paint on it which generated, by the way, 20 murals. Um, what is this idea about having people come in and help play with the art and make art as opposed to you just putting it up well, on the walls or on the floors? I've always been um, opposed to the idea that uh, that art and sculpture in particular should not be touched. And throughout my life, I've been more interested in the interaction with people and the art and the art makers. And um, I would say over many years in New Orleans, beginning with the Contemporary Art Center and since then, uh, all of the uh, all of the uh, art events I participated in um, have focused on as much interaction with the so-called audience as possible. These boxes can be moved around to experience uh, different ways they could be uh, uh, function as living units uh, within an urban setting. Um, there will also be some uh, opportunities to better understand the uh, problem of, of uh, housing where space is limited. Well, <laughs> we, we certainly lost a lot of housing, of course, in Katrina, and um, we... We are faced with um, the reality that we're probably going to lose some more in, in storms to come. And so we really do have to be thinking about alternatives. And you do have this whole movement now called the tiny house movement, which is a slightly different. But it's related. It's related. It's related to what I was talking about. Yes. I think there's this sense now that uh, we've been living uh very very um, uh, luxuriously luxuriously and yeah. uh, Some with of us large anyway. with sharing and utilizing large spaces those spaces will be diminished over time give me some sense of hope okay so i i know that you you you're very worried about this um, but I always try I'm to see the, about the silver I'm, lining. I'm not worried about it. We don't really know what the future will be like. The sense of it is that there will be major changes we have to deal with through climate change. We're just beginning to understand and experience those impacts. Um, but over the next 100, 200, or 300 years, there will be major, major shifts in the availability of resources and the availability of space and the and the safety of of the environment in many cases. And and you know what's interesting is that of course we're already seeing stories in the news uh, week after week about how other species are dealing with this. And we know that um, certain birds that used to live in in certain places have had to move to other places. Um, and and we've also just literally lost some species because they can't handle the climate change. And then the, uh, there's stories about the, the fish and how they're migrating. So, I mean, I think that's the model. They, they're, well, they're, will be they're, people, they're the canaries in the mine, as they say. Well, people will be migrating also, particularly away from low-lying areas along the coasts of the planet. 
many of the cities that uh, exist on the coast, Miami, places like Miami, um, will suffer serious uh, uh, problems of, of sustainability where migration will be necessary. Okay. So we just got through talking with two people prior to the show, one an orange uh, grower, a citrus farmer, and, and one a gentleman who spent seven years helping his um, second cousin's family um, friend, uh, uh, you know, re- renovating his house. That's how much we care about our homes. I know we want to stay here Tell me your vision of how we can stay in New Orleans. Well, we are making efforts, uh, significant efforts that are also very costly. Uh, we're trying to rebuild the environment. We're trying to rebuild our wetlands to provide the fresh water to grow additional wetlands and to build barrier islands. These efforts, though, over the long term may not be as sustainable uh, as, as we would like them to be. I think it's going to take major innovation uh, to make a place like New Orleans more sustainable. The current efforts that we're engaged in, uh, in the short term, 50 years perhaps, uh, will be workable, but the costs are going to be uh, excessive, and uh, we're not the only place uh, that's uh, having to deal with this uh, situation. Uh, other cities, other other nations uh, are dealing with the problem of sustainability. We're making an effort, certainly the the work of the, uh, the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, a state agency, is a, a major effort to make our place more sustainable. But it may not have a, the same long-term uh, uh, effect uh, without further innovation and invention and, and uh, creativity. It does seem as if um, the current city administration is focused on this as well because um, I don't think we ever heard the word infrastructure as much as we hear it now almost on a daily basis because the city is also trying to address uh, this and, and hopefully we will come up with some really clever solutions. I think New Orleans has a lot to teach the world. We have done very innovative things in the past and I'm confident we're going to do them in the future too. All right. This is Gene Nathan. This has been Crosstown Conversations. We've been looking at our homes and treasuring them and we will continue to and maybe have to be doing some major different kinds of alterations in order to keep here, uh, but we want to. This is Gene Nathan, Crosstown Conversations, and talk with you next week.